Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we've just prayed uh, together that our hearts are all open before you. You know us completely. You see us completely. We thank you that your word, that you give us revelation, that we might know things that are either hidden from us or that are hard for us to hear because of our hardness of heart. And we thank you that you give us this as your kindness, that you might draw us to see more of your grace and your faithfulness in and through Jesus Christ. And so we pray that, again, as we consider the cross this morning, that you would help us to do that very thing. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All the Gospels um, give a good amount of space to the cross of Jesus. They, they focus the reader on the cross. So the events leading up to Jesus' death and, and the trial and, and all of this, they, they give them room to breathe so that we who read the Gospels have to just kind of sit there and sit in that story. The cross is a revelation it reveals certain things about God. It shows us certain things about God. It shows us things about God's love, about his grace, about his holiness and his justice. But the cross is also a revelation of us. It exposes us. And it leaves no one untouched. Israel and her leaders, the Gentiles and their leaders, the disciples, Last week, if you were with us, we looked at Judas and the cross, and today we're looking at Peter and the cross. Throughout Matthew's gospel, Matthew has been showing us what it looks like to believe in Jesus and to follow Jesus, to be apprentices of Jesus. And if we are going to believe and follow and learn from Jesus, we have to learn an uncomfortable truth about ourselves like Peter did, that we are weak. The cross exposes and shows our weakness. The cross reveals that we're lacking, that we're not as faithful as we want to believe, that we're not as strong as we want to believe, that we're not as loving as we want to believe. And the question I think for us to consider this morning is this, what do you do with your weakness? What do you do when you're confronted with your lack? What do you do when you're confronted with your inability? What do you do with weakness? Let's think about Peter. If you know the story of the Gospels, Peter is the clear leader of the Twelve. Right? He is listed first in the list of the disciples. He's the most likely guy who's, who's going to step out and he's going to say something. He's going to ask a question. He's going to say, Jesus, I don't understand the parable. Can you explain it, please? He's going to say, uh, Lord, how many times do I have to forgive my brother? Seven? When Jesus is uh, 
on the water, walking on the water, Peter gets out of the boat and he wants to do it too. When Jesus is transfigured in all of his glory and Peter is there with Peter, James, and John, and they don't know what to say, Peter's the first one to speak. He's, he's a man of action. He's not someone who's just going to, you know, sit back. He is a leader. And I imagine, you know, if you think about it, the other disciples, it's probably nice having Peter there because you always knew there was someone who was willing to kind of ask that question, speak out, Jesus, we don't understand what you're saying. Can you please explain it? Or even the times that he messes up, at least Peter kind of bears the brunt of the confusion of the group. And perhaps maybe one of the most uh, crucial moments in the gospel where Peter steps out and he speaks out is in this moment where Jesus is asking the disciples, he's saying, what are other people saying about me? And then he says, what do you say? Who do you think I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. His name, Peter, the name that Jesus gives him when he calls the disciples, it, it means rock. Peter is the rock. And so you can imagine how unsettling it would be for Peter to hear Jesus telling him these words, verse 31, this very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. I mean, think about it, right? Peter and the disciples, they've left everything to follow Jesus. And even at times when things got really hard, like John chapter 6, where Jesus teaches some things that are very hard to understand and accept, and the crowds are leaving, and other followers are leaving, and Jesus turns and he asks the disciples, are you going to leave too? And Peter steps out and he says, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. And now Jesus is saying, you're going to fall away. Can you imagine what that must have been like for Peter to hear Jesus say that? How will, how will you receive that devastating prediction? You know, a, a couple weeks ago I was listening to a podcast sort of in the business uh, productivity genre of podcasts and they kept using this term, narrative check. They were saying, you know, it's really important uh, to have people in your life, to have community in your life that will give you a narrative check, that will, you know, help you to see things about your life perhaps or your story that you believe. You believe certain things about yourself, certain things about your story, but they're not true. And so they're going to cause you to, you know, trip up and it's going to potentially be dangerous for you because if you believe things that aren't true about you, you're in a sense living a lie. You're living into a false narrative. And the scriptures and Jesus and the cross give us a pretty strong narrative check a strong check of the way that probably most of us would want to tell our stories, certainly the way that the disciples want to tell their stories and what they want to believe about themselves. When Jesus says to them, you're going to fall away, it's even harsher than it might initially sound to us. The, the word here is scandalizo, and you can even hear in that our English word, scandalize. 
It's a word used in the Bible to describe stumbling. So you're walking a path and you, you stumble, you trip, you fall over something. And so it's used sometimes to kind of be this image of sin, but also it's used to talk about offense. Like you're walking this path and then you stumble and you fall and you, you can't get over this thing. And Jesus is saying to them, you're going to be scandalized. You are going to stumble. You're going to be horrified. You're going to fall away because of me and because of the cross, because of this way that I'm going. And Jesus' disciples, they would have heard him talk about this before. He uses this word in various places in the gospel. So uh, perhaps one of the most memorable is in chapter 13 where he's Uh, describing the second soil in the parable of the sower. And this is the soil that receives Jesus' word with great joy and enthusiasm in it, and it springs up, but there's no root. And so persecution comes, and they stumble, and they fall away. And now Jesus is saying to Peter, you're going to do this too. What do you do with that? I mean, this, this is sort of the moment, I think, for Peter. How will he receive Jesus' word? How, how will he hear it? Will he receive it? Will he humble himself? But here's the problem for Peter. Yes, Peter believes in Jesus. And yes, Peter has given his life to Jesus. But, but Peter's identity, how he sees himself, in a sense, how Peter can feel good about himself, how he knows who Peter is, it's wrapped up and tied to much more his following of Jesus and how good of a follower of Jesus he is than it's actually in Jesus. You know, it's kind of easy to see um, how someone might be building their identity, you know, on something very, very different from Jesus. You know, getting that sense of, I know who I am, I, I know that I'm valuable, I feel good about myself, I feel good about my life, this sense of who I am and why I'm here. It's easy to see that, like, for example, if you're building that on your kids or your family, that that is where you get your sense of identity, or your career and success in your career, or in being liked by other people and being accepted or having this great reputation, it's kind of easy to see because those things have to work, right? If your identity is in any of those things, you cannot fail. You cannot not be accepted. It has to work because it's your life. And look at Peter. Do you see what's going on? In Peter, we see how even believing in Jesus and following Jesus can have this sense of identity that's not really rooted in Jesus. And it's so clear because when Jesus says, Peter, you're going to fail, he can't hear it. He can't believe it. Even when Jesus offers grace and hope, verse 32, he's in a sense saying, after this is all over, after I've risen, I will meet you I'll go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter can't believe it. He can't receive this truth about himself, that he's actually far more weak, that he's far uh, more faithless and cowardly than he would ever dare let himself believe. And so we see Peter separates himself from the rest of the group. Verse 33, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. 
maybe them. Maybe them, Jesus, but, but not me. Not Peter. Not the rock. He can't bear to hear Jesus tell him, you are going to crumble. And if falling away wasn't bad enough, Jesus says, verse 34, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And though Jesus, right, has quoted scripture and has told them what's going to happen, and think about it, there is nothing that this man has said that doesn't come true. Everything. So the disciples are in a boat with Jesus, and there's that storm that comes, and they all think that they're going to die, and then Jesus speaks a word, and it's still. He speaks, and demons obey. He speaks, and nature's laws are suspended. He speaks, and dead people come to life, and Peter says, no, it's not going to happen. Verse 35, even if I have to die with you, I'll never disown you. Peter says, I'm never going to fail. Jesus says, you're going to fail. You're not going to last the night. And you're going to fail repeatedly. But Peter can't receive it. And really what we see throughout the rest of this story is Peter operating out of a false narrative, out of false beliefs about himself in his own wisdom and strength trying to do life, trying to follow Jesus. And so we see verses 36 through 46, right? Jesus takes his disciples to Gethsemane and he specifically takes Peter, James, and John, his inner circle, and Jesus is overwhelmed with sorrow, with grief, to the point of death, and he says, stay here and keep watch with me. And Jesus is over here and he is praying and he's taking what the scriptures have said and what God has said must happen and he is bending himself and submitting himself to God and the disciples are sleeping. Peter, who is quite sure that Jesus and the scriptures are wrong, is sleeping. Jesus comes to them and he says, you know, Peter, could you not watch with me for one hour? Peter, don't you know the moment of trial and temptation is coming? Watch and pray. You have zeal, you have enthusiasm, but you are weak. You cannot do this alone. And so two more times Jesus goes and he prays and he is preparing himself for what is coming and he is wrestling in prayer and with the scriptures and with his father and Peter, who can't conceive, can't conceive that it's possible that he really is as weak as Jesus says, takes a nap. And then finally, Jesus gets them up when he sees Judas and the mob coming to arrest him. And here's the moment where Peter sort of springs into action. Uh, Matthew doesn't identify him, but John, the Gospel of John does. Of course, of course, it's Peter gets out his sword and he's ready to fight for Jesus. But Jesus rebukes him. Verse 53, Peter, do you not think I cannot call on my father and he would at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But then how would the scriptures be fulfilled? And so when it's clear that Jesus isn't going to put up a fight and that maybe everything that Jesus had been saying it's actually going to happen that he's going to be delivered over to the council, that he's going to be condemned, that he's going to be put to death. They flee. Verse 56, the disciples desert and flee. But Peter doesn't go too far. The others flee, and I think, 
I think Peter, driven by his own perception of himself, that he's stronger than the others, he continues to try to follow. But this is not the this is not what he had, you know, previously said. He's not standing with Jesus. Verse 58, he follows at a distance. He comes into the courtyard of the high priest and he waits to see what's going to happen. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I think of being heroic, when I daydream, and I don't do this a ton, but when I daydream about doing something great, it's often like really big and grand. You know, it's rushing into a battle or it's, you know, pushing someone out of the way of a car and it's this big, grand thing. And I think Peter probably, that's how he envisioned what this was going to be. Like, he was going to be there with his sword, and he was going to be fighting and protecting Jesus to the death, or, or maybe he would be with Jesus at the big council, and he'd be standing there like the rock that he is before everyone speaking the truth. But then reality hits. Matthew tells us, one little slave girl, verse 69, says, you also were with Jesus of Galilee. And maybe he's just caught off guard. This is not at all what he was thinking this was going to look like. Or maybe Peter really is just this incredibly weak. But he pleads ignorance. I don't know what you're talking about. And then he moves further from Jesus. Verse 71, he goes out to the gateway. So he's moving, he's moving further and further out of this area. And then another servant girl sees him and brings attention to the crowd. This fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. And now we just have to consider where we are in Peter's story. He's not faced or reckoned with the truth of the scriptures, what Jesus has said about him. He has dismissed and denied the reality of what Jesus has said about him. He has skipped the prayer meeting, and now he's left with his own pride that's brought him to this place, his need to be not like the others, to be stronger than them, and he just begins to crumble and fall apart. You can imagine at this point, if, if you've ever been in one of these high-pressure situations, you know, your, your blood is just churning, you have adrenaline, fight-or-flight responses kicking in. All you're thinking about now is, how do I protect myself? And so he swears and he speaks an oath and he says, I don't, I don't know the man. Maybe he's still in a bit of shock because he's still standing there, or maybe he's trying to see what's going to happen with Jesus, and he wants to see this thing out. But then verse 73, those standing there go up to Peter, and they say to him, surely, surely you're one of them. Your accent gives you away. We know you're from Galilee. And then Peter does the unthinkable. He calls down curses. And this is a word that usually requires a direct object, like the thing that you're calling down curses. And sometimes it's translated and understood as Peter is cursing himself, but the word himself is not actually in the text. And a number of scholars have been led, therefore, to conclude that what he's actually doing is he is cursing Jesus. That he is cursing Jesus and he's saying, I don't know him, I don't know the man. And then at that point, the rooster crows, and he hears, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And the Gospel of Luke adds that at this moment, Jesus turns, and somehow through the crowds, and through all that's going on, Jesus' eyes meet Peter's. 
and he leaves just weeping. Do you know what that's like? Maybe not that dramatic, maybe that's not exactly what happened, but do you know what it's like to be hit with reality? To be exposed, to be laid bare. I remember when I was 19, um, I went to this uh, Christian music festival called Cornerstone, and uh, I was there with my friends. I had been a Christian for about one year. I had had a fairly dramatic conversion the summer before. Actually, a lot of the friends that I was there with, we all became Christians in about the span of three months. And I had spent that year uh, just drinking in the scriptures and just theology and everything I could get my hands on. And I, I mean, had zeal coming out my ears. And I remember this week looking at this text, a distinct memory of being at that Christian festival. It was very hot and so during the day, we would, we would go to this little lake that was near our campground, and we would kind of hang out there. And I remember that we were there, and we were talking about the gospel, and we were talking about life and what it would look like to follow Jesus in and, and all these different parts of our life. And I remember specifically at one point just like pontificating about the gospel and marriage and you know, laying down my life for my wife and, and all, all of this sort of thing. My mind was drawn to it this week because it's one thing to theologize and pontificate and it's quite another thing to actually do it. Because when I think about my, my day-to-day life, how often it is in the mo- most mundane acts of sacrificial love that I'm called to, that I struggle. That I don't like it when my plans are frustrated or when a dream of mine or a hope of mine has to be put on hold. That even in like the really, really small ways that I'm called to sacrifice and love those around me, that I am weak. I remember when I first became a Christian, I knew there were certain things that I really needed God's help with, that I really needed grace and forgiveness and mercy. But then there were all sorts of other things that I didn't see and things that I still don't even see. I remember being 27, so nine years later, nine years of following Jesus, nine years of church, nine years of reading the Bible, nine years of theological education to prepare for full-time ministry, being in a class at Westminster Seminary, a counseling class with Aaron, and we were studying uh, anger and how to minister to angry people. And I remember it like hit me like a ton of bricks. I'm an angry person. Like, this is an issue for me. And the evidence was all there. The evidence was there, but I just didn't see it until that moment. Do you know what that's like? To be hit with a profound sense of your weakness. It's easy to go through life thinking that you're better than you really are, that you're stronger than you really are, that you're more moral and upright than you really are, maybe because you've gotten good at shifting the blame or retelling your story in a way that, you know, kind of gets rid of those pieces. 
Or maybe it's just because you've never really been squeezed. Like the circumstances of life have never really squeezed you to expose what's there. To expose like what Peter had happened, his failure and his weakness. And that thought should be, should be somewhat terrifying because in reality, I don't really know how weak and faithless and loveless I am. And you don't either. But the good news is that Jesus does. Jesus sees you. He sees the unfiltered you. He sees you in all of your weakness, in all of your helplessness, and he loves you. You think about this text, right? And just before this event, Jesus sits down for a meal with his disciples, with his disciples who are going to fail him, who are going to flee at his moment of greatest need, who will not be there. And he takes bread and he breaks it and he gives it to them and he says, this is my body and it's for you. And he takes the cup and he says, this is my blood and it's for you. And then he says, you're gonna fail. You guys are gonna fail. But when all this is over, I'm gonna see you again. The gospels hold out this stark contrast that the disciples and we, we live in denial of what the scriptures say, but Jesus prays and he bends his life to the Father and the will of, of the Father. We see that the disciples, they, they sleep and they don't think they really need to pray and Jesus devotes himself to prayer. We see Peter who disowns Jesus and, and says, I don't even know him, denies even knowing him at all, while Jesus stands before the real council and the real authorities and speaks the truth. The cross exposes our weakness. But it is an invitation to come and be overwhelmed with the faithfulness of God in Jesus Christ, the strength of Jesus, of his grace it's an invitation to live your story into the true story that yes, you are weak, but he is strong. And his grace and his strength and his faithfulness is sufficient and abounding for you.